Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast. I'm Isabel Berwick, Executive Editor at FT Work and Careers, and joining me today is my colleague Emma Jacobs, Work and Careers feature writer. Hello. We're recording this series of the podcast around the theme of how to live and work better in a tech-driven age, and we'll be talking about new books that offer advice and practical steps towards that dream. It's all ahead of the launch of the 2018 FT & McKinsey Business Book of the Year Prize this spring. Our second book is How to Break Up with Your Phone by Catherine Price. And when we saw it, we knew we had to talk about it because the back cover promises to help readers conquer their mobile phone addiction in just 30 days. And Catherine offers up some pretty grim statistics. Half of us check our phones in the middle of the night and one in 10 people, I stress these are Americans, (laughs) checks their phone during sex. Catherine, welcome. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. I was worried you were going to ask me a question about that one. You're an award-winning science journalist. What brought you to writing a book on this subject? Well, it was actually a a personal trigger. Um, A couple of years ago, I guess two and a half years ago, I I had a child and I was up late one night with her and I was looking at my phone, as many new parents do. I think maybe because I was so sleep deprived, I had this momentary kind of -of out-of-body experience where I saw this scene as it would appear to someone in the room with me. And it was my daughter looking at me, and then me looking down on my phone, searching for antique doorknobs on eBay, <laughs> which is an odd habit, but very relatable. Actually, what I was doing—is it relatable? I don't know. I, do, I feel it is. <laughs> I guess we all have our antique doorknobs, but anyway, you know. And I had this vision of what this looked like, and I thought, oh my goodness. There's nothing wrong with using your phone to distract you, but I do not want my daughter's first impression of her mother to be me looking at my phone while she looks into my eyes. And that was really a catalyzing moment for me. And I I began to speak more with my husband about our relationships with our phones, and the two of us started to experiment with various ways to change those relationships. And that kind of evolved into a proposal that ended up being this book. Right. So what you've done in the book is outline a a four-week process. How did that come about? The reason the plan is four weeks long instead of, say, just a series of tips is that if you think about it, much like most relationships in our lives, there's a lot of emotional stuff going on with our relationships with our phones. We are reaching for them for a lot of different reasons, from distraction to boredom to stress to, you know, feeling depressed. And what I realized as I was researching various subjects like neuroplasticity or behavior change or mindfulness that you're not going to be able to do this overnight. It takes a while to change a habit. And what's more, you're not going to succeed in changing a habit that's as compelling as checking your smartphone if you don't have a much broader sense of why you're doing this to begin with and also what you want to be doing instead. And so that's why the plan is longer than just a day or just an article. 
I think that you could do a lot of the things within that plan in a shorter period of time. You could kind of like binge perform a couple of the more practical tips and suggestions in there. But I do think it makes sense overall for people to commit to this idea for a month and see how they end up at the end. So we've been consciously trying to follow some of the book in preparation for a full detox when it's published. And I believe there'll be a Twitter campaign we can go along with. Emma, what have you done so far? Well, I did the monitoring using the app to monitor my usage. And and, I mean, I was horrified by the results, but I thought that I was slightly below average, which then made me think, oh, I'm not as bad as other people and I could maybe use my phone a bit more. So I don't know whether it had the best impact on me, but I have How much time were you spending? (laughs) Fess up. Well, some of this I was at work. I mean, at work, emailing people in the office. I mean, I think that we'll get into this in a bit, but I don't know how much of it is me justifying my usage and using the phone to email work and then flicking onto Twitter to see if anybody said anything a bit funny and counting that as work. So I think I was on it for about two and a half hours a day. Okay. What do you think? Is that bad? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think as you alluded to it, it depends on whether or not you think it's problematic. Mm. I would say that Email on the phone definitely counts as time on your phone because that is my big weakness. I mean, I keep deleting my email app and then reinstalling it. And you can tell that it, in part that it should count because it's like I could be doing this on the desktop very easily. It's so much less efficient to do it on the phone. And do I really need to be checking my email, you know, in in a moment where there's no way I actually can respond to the email? In an elevator, I can't write back by the time it gets to the ground floor. Do you find that people are coming up to you at parties and asking you if their dependency is as bad as other people's? Have you become like... (laughs) a phone doctor. I do feel a little bit like a psychologist, you know, or like a couple therapist is kind of what comes to mind between people and their phones. How is our relationship? How can we improve it? One of the things you talk about in the book actually is how shifting our personal relationship with our phones changes our working relationship with them and, and, and actually examining how much we do need to use our phones for work, which I think was one of the most useful things I've picked up so far, because as you say, are you really checking for work by looking at your Instagram feed, which is, you know, I actually hadn't considered before. So I think by separating our working lives and our personal lives, I think that you're offering us something really useful to think about. Was that something you came upon as you were doing it or was that something you consciously did? Well, I guess a little bit of both because I definitely struggle in my own life as a freelancer to draw lines between work and home. I mean, even not even talking about the phone, just in general. Because mm. I, I have a home office and I have a laptop. And I mean, even right now, I feel like I need to do a better job of saying, okay, after a certain hour, laptop's away and you're not working even though you're at home. But I, I think that it's interesting to think about what we're actually using our phones for and really to start to, as you were just saying, tease apart what's genuinely important or necessary for our work and professional lives versus what we're using as excuses because of our brains kind of twitching us to want to reach for the phone. And I think that once you start to identify what about your phone is essential for work, then you can start to work on that relationship as well. And you could say, okay, if I need to be on email, I I need to be available because of my job, how can I make myself available without being on the phone all the time? And there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, from giving yourself set times that you're going to be checking your email and then putting an autoresponder that tells people that that's when you'll be checking your email, uh, telling your colleagues about this, having a conversation with your boss, and basically saying, when I'm on my phone all the time, it's interrupting my productivity for what I'm supposed to be doing. And that is why I'm setting these consistent times of focus and then times to be available. And then there are a number of app blockers that you can use to keep yourself on track. 
and to stick to your intentions. I mean, I was talking to a therapist in a work capacity yesterday about technology and, and people's relationship with work. I mean, it is a kind of narcissism in a way, I think, that they think they're so important that they need to respond immediately. Actually, nobody really cares as much as you think they do. And if you either have a conversation with your boss or colleague and say that you're not going to return their call or return their email over the weekend or overnight, that that's probably okay. But it's just the idea of your self-importance. And and I wondered if that was part of it as well. I mean, I definitely think so. The world is not going to stop if you don't respond to an email two minutes after you get it. And I think that that's also particularly true when we're on vacation and we find ourselves compulsively checking our email, compulsively reaching for our phones, presumably because we're going to miss something important. (laughs) But again, in reality, because we're just... We've conditioned ourselves to want to check the phone at all times. So I think it is useful to think, really, how important am I in the grand scheme of things, especially if you've communicated to the people to whom you might be important that you're you know, taking this new structure. Why didn't you suggest ditching the phone altogether or just downgrading to a dumb phone? I don't think that's really a practical or even a good idea for most people because there's a lot of reasons that our phones are genuinely very useful and enjoyable from allowing us to step away from our office, for example, and and not worry about missing something that truly is important to listening to music or listening to a podcast or FaceTiming with uh, friends or family who are far away. So it would be kind of silly to try to get rid of our phones entirely and also really impractical considering all of the practical stuff we use them for, like navigation. So I think really the point here, and I I do like to emphasize this because when people hear breakup, they sometimes worry I'm saying you should throw away your phone. If you break up with a person, you're not saying that you're never going to date anyone again. You're saying that that relationship was not good for you in some way and you want to have the space to create something better. So when we break up with our phones, it's the same idea. You're taking a step back from your current relationship with your phone, identifying what's working, figuring out what's not working, and then using those insights to create a better relationship with your phone. You've sort of captured the zeitgeist, actually. There's a sudden backlash against our phones being omnipresent. Some pop stars demand no filming at their gigs. Can you envisage a world where looking at your phone while being in charge of a small child is as frowned upon as blowing cigarette smoke in the child's face, for example? I'd like to envision that (laughs) world. Uh, (laughs) I, I think that everyone's relationship is personal, but to me personally... I do get sad when I see the way that we interact with each other being affected by phones. And and I do think, I'm heartened by what you're talking about, this sudden shift in the conversation, the public conversation about phones. It really does feel like there was a light switch that went on sometime around December and early January about this. And so I do think that we have the potential to use this awakening to come up with some societal rules and etiquette about when it is and is not appropriate to use your phone. Because up to now, we've just accepted them into our lives so unquestioningly, we've never thought about the etiquette of it. And so, yes, I could see a situation in the future where, for example, businesses might have a policy, and some already do this, of no phones at meetings, or, you know, that between a certain hours of the day, like maybe people are understood not to be available by email. I could see restaurant owners or movie theaters or other cultural places having rules about having phones out at the table or just be more explicit in asking people to put them away. I mean, part of me even like dreams of a world where it's kind of like smoking and you can have phone, you know, phone and no phone sections in a restaurant. Although that's kind of a personal thing because at this point I'm so conscious of people on their phones that I can't not see them and it's getting in the way of me being able to enjoy <laughs> being out. People must look at you and put their phone away immediately, isn't they? <laughs> 
No, they don't even see me because they're looking at the <laughs> But uh, But I don't want to be like a school marmot totally, I'm coming off as like totally judgmental. I think that really what I hope people will take away both from my book and from this conversation is that this is a relationship and we are spending a lot of time on our phones and we should be more conscious about that because when it comes down to it, I mean, you have a limited amount of time in life and your life is what you pay attention to. For example, right now, the world around me doesn't exist. I'm just sitting in this room talking to you guys. And so this is what I'm going to remember from this part of my day. And I'm enjoying it. And that's wonderful. I'm really happy about that. But if I were to walk out of this room and then look at my phone for 30 minutes, then my phone is that part of the day. There's nothing intrinsically good or bad about that. But I want to make sure that if I were to do that, it's the result of a conscious decision, not because I just kind of did a zombie check and picked it up again, maybe to check for my work email and then got sucked into social media or something like that. I mean, when I was reading the book, I was sort of struck by the parallels between your regime and diet books. And it sort of made me wonder whether that it's all about us and our own relationship and self-improvement and how can I deny myself chocolate cake or how can I deny myself quick look at Instagram and actually maybe some of the pushback should be on big tech much as it has been with the food industry and that maybe we shouldn't just chastise ourselves for some of these things. I definitely don't think we should chastise ourselves and I'm actually really happy you brought up the diet book um, comparison because that I think is a really important point and this is why so often phone breakups fail is that we are approaching it like a diet and nobody likes to be on diet right if you think about your phone as a source of pleasure and Mm -hmm. enjoyment And then you say, okay, I'm going to cut back on it. Well, then that doesn't feel good. That feels like restriction. And you're probably not going to stick with it for that long. What I think is important and very useful to do instead is to think about this idea of, you know, your life is what you pay attention to and think outside the phone. What are the things that really give you meaning? Actually, just in general in life, because chances are it's not going to be stuff that's on the phone. Maybe it's your family or your friends or running or something else like that. And then if you start to think about the phone, Switch it from being this source of pleasure and enjoyment to a device that's keeping you from pleasure and enjoyment so that when you're on your phone, you're actually preventing yourself from having these other experiences. And I think that's a really useful psychological shift because it makes it go from a a feeling of restriction to a feeling of doing something good for yourself that makes you happy. And the analogy I like to use, and it actually has to do with food, is that people often call phones and apps junk food, right? Mm -hmm. So if you imagine, if you use that analogy, imagine that you're like alone in a small room eating a bowl of potato chips, that being your phone and apps and whatever. And you're just binge eating potato chips. They taste pretty good. You can feel a little sick after a while. Then you like catch sight of a different room at the corner of your eye and there's all these people in this room and they're laughing and they're dancing and they're having a great time and they have this spread of food that is absolutely amazing. It's the best food you've ever seen, right? And you're like, why am I not in that room? And and what previously seemed like indulgent experience, you alone with like food for yourself sounds pretty unappealing. And what's really neat about that is that the door's not locked. You just go into the other room. And that's what I like to think of when I think of framing this idea of changing your relationship with your phone. There is an amazing world out there that you are not experiencing when you're spending all of your time staring at its screen. But it's a bit like that with junk food, surely. I mean, I could Mm -hmm. not eat crisps and I could have a really nice steak. You know, that's often the kind of framing that they do with health regimes or, you know, why waste it on something rubbish or spending, why buy this loads of rubbish when you could buy one really good thing. But people like to be satiated by lots of snacking, I mean, in Uh all sorts of things, grazing in attention and also in food or spending. 
and and so maybe we should be putting some of our anger on the tech companies instead. I mean, you'd spent quite a big chunk describing the process that they incentivize us to look at our telephones. Yes, and that's a, that's a very good point. And that actually does work with this analogy. If, if you want to eat a bag of potato chips, right, it's your personal responsibility. It's your free will to decide that you, sorry, crisps. If you want to eat it. <laughs> We've got American <laughs> listeners too. There we go. <laughs> but anyway, so you get that bag of crisps and you eat the whole thing and then the bag is empty and you're holding an empty bag. Well, you can't keep eating crisps unless you buy another bag, right? So mm-hmm. it's called the stopping cue. It's something that makes you have to stop before you continue with the behavior you were doing. Same thing with ice cream. You're going to get to the bottom of the pint of ice cream and if you want more, you have to get up and go to the freezer and get more ice cream. So this is where it is very interesting to think about the role of these companies, because if you look at the design of apps and social media apps in particular, you'll notice that they do not have these stopping cues. There is nothing that makes you pause and forces you to ask, hmm, do I really want to keep scrolling through Instagram? The best example that stands out to me is is the endlessness of the feeds, right? Like they just Mm -hmm. keep going and going and going. You could keep going as we do for an hour without looking up and not really realizing that you've done that. So it encourages this binge viewing that, frankly, is possible with food because, first of all, the bag can only be so big, and second, our stomachs can only hold so much food. So when you get into that kind of area of discussion, that's when you start to think, hmm, well, why is that? Why are the app designers, why do they want us to spend so much time on them? Why does it benefit them? And that's where, I mean, I came to the revelation, which seems much more common now, but when I first read about it, it really surprised me. The reason all those apps are free is that we're not actually their customers. They make their money by selling ads. And, of course, the idea of an advertisement is to steal someone's attention, make them pay attention to your ad. So the longer we stay on the feed, the more ads will be able to be shown. And that is why there are these design elements that are very easy for us to spend a lot more time than we intended looking through these. So like anyone, starting any new regime is is hard. But I understand that if if I want to really break up with my phone in the way you describe, you're offering some sort of support network. Is is that right? Is is that tying in with the publication of the book? Uh, Yes. So the book comes out in the United States on February 13th. And I've designed a couple of things to try to help people because I think it's uh, really helpful to do this with other people. So one thing I created is a 30-day online challenge. It's a timed series of emails that you can sign up for whenever you want to. And it's designed to accompany the book. And so one thing you could do would be to get a friend or family member to do this with you and go through the 30-day plan together. And it's basically just meant to, as I said, like remind you of the day's exercises in the book and keep you on track. And then also from the launch date, February 13th through March 14th, I'm running a phone awareness month campaign. And that is on social media. So of course, it's like, oh, ironic. But I think it actually is an example of how these technologies aren't inherently good or bad. It comes down to how you use it. And so my hope is that by doing this campaign on Twitter using um, the hashtag phone breakup, I'll be able to offer people daily exercises, challenges, respond to questions, maybe build an online community of people who are going through this at the same time for the month and make it into kind of rewarding use of social media that connects you with real people all talking about and working toward a similar goal. And Catherine, after doing the regime yourself and writing about it, how's your relationship with your phone changed? I've not searched for doorknobs <laughs> in over a year. <laughs> I know that it is much better than it used to be. And I also know that my attention span and ability to focus is very different and better than it was before I started this. 
I mentioned in the book that when I looked back on my notes from the early stages of this idea, it, they read like I am crazy. Like they're totally <laughs> disjointed. There's all these arrows around the pages, you know, linking thoughts with other thoughts. And then at some point, out of nowhere, I say, I just went on Amazon and bought three sports bras. How did that happen? Um, you know, so n- now I feel like I can write in my journal for more than a paragraph and be coherent. <laughs> But I will say that, you know, I still struggle with wanting to reach for my phone. My issue is still email. And I think that that brings up an important point that we shouldn't expect there to be this changing or turning point where suddenly the relationship is perfect and you never have to think about it or work at it again. So I try to keep myself constantly on guard and I've used some psychological tricks to get myself to do that. For example, if I see someone else pull out their phone on the elevator, you know, that used to make me want to reach for mine. And now instead, I've tried to transform that into a reminder to be like, okay, what do I actually want to do with my time today? So it actually has turned into kind of an annoyance and a temptation to a useful prompt. And I also, sometimes I put a rubber band around my phone so that when I reach for it, I have a physical reminder or or rather, I guess, alert that I'm about to check my phone so that I I call that a speed bump. It's like a little obstacle that helps ensure that if I do check my phone, it's a conscious decision. And I also have a lock screen image that says, what do you want to pay attention to? So that anytime I turn on the phone, that's what I see. And I actually created free downloads of that on the book's website, um, which is phonebreakup.com, that listeners can download and try for themselves to see if it helps change their habits. But I think it's really all about awareness and cultivating this awareness, giving yourself speed bumps, and also very importantly, figuring out what you actually want to do with your time. Because if you spend less time on your phone, you're going to end up with a lot more time in your daily life. And I found that to be one of the hardest parts because I had kind of forgotten or maybe never truly identified as an adult what pastimes made me happy. (laughs) Catherine, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And in fact, we always finish with something upbeat. And for this series as an antidote to a fraught tech-obsessed world, we're finishing each podcast with our own life-affirming recommendations for what we've read recently. And given what we've just been talking about, I'd like to invite you to join in. Has there been a book you've read recently that you've really enjoyed? Yes. I normally read very like lengthy, dense nonfiction books about things like tech addiction. But I recently read a book of fiction for the first time in a long time. And it was A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Toll. And it was lovely. I, in fact, reread parts just because I found the prose to be so delightful. And Emma, what have you read recently? I've not managed to do very well on the uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> I've just given up Reservoir 13 by John McGregor. And I've started on Essex Serpent, which which I'm looking forward by to. Sarah Perry. Yeah. And I have read a very uplifting <laughs> book called Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman, which I believe has been optioned for film by Reese Witherspoon, oh, which is a really wonderful debut novel. Well, that's it for us this week. My thanks to Catherine Price in the United States, to Emma Jacobs here in the studio, and to our producer, Yanina Conboy. Join us next time when we'll be talking about another new book that aims to help us to thrive in a tech-dominated age. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.